Epistle reading from 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the... Okay, so look in your bulletins at uh, the epistle reading, or you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6 if you want. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the gospel and sex today. Um, I've talked about uh, sex before in here. I don't try and do it too much because uh, sometimes people leave the church when you talk about sex. But it's in the Bible, and uh, so, I mean, what are you going to do? It also, uh, you know, the, the, the gods, our particular gods need to be challenged, and uh, money, sex, and power always have to be brought under the light of the gospel. And so maybe it's nice that it's a small, intimate crowd this morning, and uh, the people who might get upset aren't here. Uh, but you guys won't, because you're very gracious, and uh, you don't mind this sort of thing. I, uh, I also know there's a bunch of kids uh, in the congregation, too, uh, here. And so this will be uh, PG, I promise. But I, some, some of you, I was talking to one of you last Sunday about reading the Bible with your family, and the Bible is definitely rated R. Oh, you know, what do you do when you get to texts that are kind of, that they're about sex? This one's not even very graphic, but some in the Old Testament are pretty graphic. What do you do? And the answer is, is you just read it because it's God's word. Um, most stuff, I was talking to Angela about it afterwards, and she was saying, most stuff like this, it just goes over, like, it just, you don't, you don't even, it doesn't even register when you're a kid, you know? And then eventually you start asking questions. But um, I was, when I was having this conversation last week with the, the uh, one of you who was asking me about reading the Bible with your family. I was thinking about this story from um, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, where she remembered, you know, she, uh, she remembered when she was a little girl, and she asked her dad, she said, I was, we were standing on a train platform waiting for a train, and I just, I had something I wanted to ask him about, and so I, I just, we were standing, I just asked him about sex. And here's her dad, he's, a, he's old, at this point he was an older man, uh, a Dutch watchmaker, very sort of stoic. And he said to her, he said, hey, reach down and pick up that suitcase. And she said, I can't, it's too heavy. And he said, well, just try it. And she tries to tug on it, and she couldn't pick it up. And she said, I can't pick it up, it's too heavy. And he said, that's fine, I'll carry it for you right now. You don't need to carry it, I'll carry it for you. In a few years, you'll be able to pick it up, and then I'll ask you to help me carry it. But for right now, you don't need to worry about the suitcase, I can take care of it for you. And your question's the same way, he tells her. He's just, right now, I'll carry that for you. You don't need to worry about it. The time will come when you can carry it, and I'll let you carry it then. And so when you're talking to your kids about the stuff in the Bible about this, um, that's a good way to handle it, is just to say, 
right now. Let's just put it off. Let's read God's word together. Uh, the other thing, though, is I think that you and I need to be talking about sex out loud. I didn't grow up in a Christian culture that talked about it. Sex was almost like kind of dirty and private, you know, and you just, the culture talks to you about it. And so where did me and my friends learn about sex? It wasn't from the church. It was from the surrounding culture. That's not a scenario that we want to happen. Because sex is like money and power is a huge idol in our culture. And so let's go to God's word and think about it. Um, anyway, that's what we're going to do this morning for a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians, of course, I've told you guys this before. The city of Corinth is famous in the ancient world, not even amongst Christians, but in the ancient world it was famous for uh, its sexual promiscuity. It's, uh, it sits on the isthmus between uh, the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. So there's tons of sailors in and out of there. And in the ancient world, like in cities today, if there's a large uh, maritime uh, transient group, it's going to be uh, known for its uh, vices. And Corinth was no different. Paul, start, so Paul starts the Christian church in Corinth, and he gets basically, it sounds like there's three groups of people in this church in the way they think about sex. All three of these groups are Christians. One is trying to think about sex biblically. Uh, one is a group that says, hey, we have the Holy Spirit. We can do what we want, right? I mean, just, just kind of do, do whatever you want. And Paul, is, this, is the, this is the people he's addressing in our text today. And he says no. The other group he's going to address in 1 Corinthians 7, which we're not going to talk about today, uh, but I preached on it a, a, year, a year and a half, two years ago. And the group in 1 Corinthians says, all these people with all their sex stuff, that's horrible. We think sex is just bad. You shouldn't have sex. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, no, that's not right either. God created sex for a specific reason. And he loves it, and it's beautiful. So let's talk today about the second group, though, the group who... Um, a Christian, worshiping in a Christian church. Also, specifically here, going to uh, uh, the pagan temples and having sex with the, with, the, with the pagan prostitutes, the sacred prostitutes at those temples. And Paul says here to them, don't do that. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, I, I, I could just, we could just stop there and say, sexual immorality is wrong. Don't do it. Paul says flee from it. And that would be, uh, I guess in a certain sense, fine. If that's all you need, that's fine. Paul's gonna talk about why we should, though. See, that's purely negative. If I just say, flee from sexual immorality, that's purely negative. It's just don't do this. Paul's gonna talk about why, why you would wanna flee from sexual immorality. And let, let me just, real quick, the word sexual immorality is kind of vague. And just like anything else in our culture, you can interpret that however you want to. And Christians do. They'll say, well, this is sexually immoral, but what I do is not sexually immoral. Uh, the word there is, uh, the Greek word uh, for sexual immorality here is uh, the word porneia, which is the word we get pornography from. And it just means any sex outside of marriage. It's not the word for adultery. There's a word for adultery, cheating on your spouse. This is just the word, it's a, big, it's a broader word. Any sex outside of uh, marriage is porneia. Paul says flee from that, run away from that. So, um, let's talk about why, though. Uh, it's going to be easy to say the negative, and um, Paul's got a lot of good reasons here, to, too, for why we should do that. I'll give you three, and there's more. I, there's, there's one verse in here that, that you might want to be wanting to talk about, and I'm not going to, and it's just simply because we don't have time, honestly. And it's the verses down uh, there where it says, uh, verse 18, every other person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Like when I read that, I think, well, wait a minute. 
Aren't there lots of sins that you can commit against your own body? Like, what about suicide? Uh, what about abusing drugs? That seems like a sin against your own. What's Paul talking about here? We can't talk about that in here. I don't see I, I wish we could. It would be a whole other sermon, though. I am going to talk about it in adult Bible study downstairs. So if you uh, want to uh, uh, come downstairs, the basement's warm, and you can come down there, and we'll talk about these verses at the beginning of adult Bible study. But let me point out three things. Not that. That'll be adult Bible study. Three things. First of all, you're not a slave. Second of all, you belong to the Lord. And then third of all, your sexuality was designed specifically to reflect God. That's what sex is about. It was designed, it was created, it was invented by God to reflect him. And the pleasure that you get out of sex and the babies that are born out of sex flow out of that reflection of him. We'll get to that in the third point. But first of all, you're not a slave. Look at the, look at the very first verse in the text. All things are lawful for me. You can see in, in, in the bulletin there, that's in quotes. Paul is taking a quote that, that, that some of the Christians in the church have given him to say, well, we can have sex with whoever we want because we're not under the law anymore. There's no more rules. So we have the Holy Spirit. So we can do whatever, and all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, he, he doesn't say, that's not true. All things aren't lawful for me. He says, okay, all things are lawful for you, but not all things are helpful. And then again, he quotes their, their, uh, their phrase again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. And one of those points in this text is that a porneia, sexual immorality, enslaves. There's two different possibilities of what he means here. And they both, are, they both make sense and they both go together. So I'll give you both of them. And it's quite possible that Paul means both of them as well. The first is this. The first is that sexual sin itself enslaves us. You can't really dabble in sexual sin. It come, like any other sin, it comes to own you. So you're free. In Jesus Christ, you're, you are free. But a lot of times we'll give power to things and we'll think, this is, this is me acting out of my freedom. I'll, I'll, I can just do this and it's not a big deal. But when you do these things, you're giving power over to something which in turn exercises that power over you. And it could be any one of the big gods, sex, money, or power. It could be money. People do this. They, they begin to live for money. And they, well, it's not a big deal, you know. It's, everybody's, we live in America. Everybody's trying to get more money. But that kind of thing, it does, it's not just that you're doing something you shouldn't do, like living for money. It's not just even that it has bad ripple effects on your family and on your friends or on your psychological health. It's that that becomes to own you. That, that pursuit of money becomes to dominate you. It becomes, to, it, be, it becomes the thing that you can't get out of your head. And even if you think, oh, I'm not going to live for money anymore, it, it, it's, it, it's just impossible. It's so impossible that Jesus says to people who are struggling with the God of money, you just need to give everything away and come follow me. Just give everything away. It's the only way. It's radical surgery because it's such a powerful master. Sexual sin is the same way. It's idolatry. We sin because we do what we want to do, but then the sin becomes our God. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16, which is not in the text we read last Sunday, but uh, right after the text we read last Sunday, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anybody as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? You're slaves, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Like Bob Dylan said, uh, you got to serve somebody. You are going to be, a, we are not free agents. That's a lie of the Enlightenment. It's one of the most powerful American lies is that we're free agents and we get to do whatever we want and there's really, we can just sort of change course whenever we want. 
It's not true. We are slaves of something or somebody. And the question for 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul has for them is, do you want to be a slave to sexual sin? Do you want that to come to own you? And I, I, mean, I gave you the examples about money, but, but the, the examples about sexual sin abound. Lots of people are caught up in affair, are caught up in sexual immorality, and they just don't know how to get out of it. They're trapped. They don't know how to stop it. A lot of people are addicted to porn, and they don't know how to stop it. It's like a drug, because this is what sin does. So it's possible that he's talking about the sin itself, which enslaves us. But it's also possible that he means this. When we commit sexual sin, we allow somebody else to enslave us. You can see how those are related. But we turn ourselves over to someone else. We allow another human being to have control of us, even if just briefly, and we become somebody else's slave. Now, I will highly recommend and it's not just me, it's sociologists and anthropologists, highly recommend you not to learn to dissociate. Not to say, I can give my body to somebody else, but I will mentally not care. I'll just sort of emotionally not buy in. I'll check out. I'll do this because I gotta meet some need, whatever that need is. It could be physical, it could be psychological, it could be socio-relational. But I'm gonna check out. This is the worst thing that you can do to yourself. But this is what sexual sin does, is it gives your body over to somebody else who does not own you and says, let's play like you do own me. No covenant commitment, no promise that I will never leave, no guarantee, in fact, a lot of, sometimes there's even a guarantee that I'm going to leave, but let's pretend that it's not real. Just for a few minutes, let me give myself to you. Now, we'll talk in a few minutes about, and there's, a, there's like three sermons three sermons that, that were here, and I, I will preach those in due course. One of the sermons that I wanted to preach to you had to do with this question of the relationship between freedom and God's love for us, and how consent is a horrible, horrible basis for human sexual activity. But that is the primary driver in our culture for what counts as good sex versus bad sex is consent. And I don't, this is a whole other sermon. I'll just say this, though, right now. Sociologists are starting to see that consent doesn't actually work. There's really no such thing as consent because we as humans aren't as free as we thought that we were. You can say that, well, I consented to it. How many people consent to sex and then the next day or the next half hour or the next month, they regret it? Is that consent when you say yes to it but you really don't like it? It's really not consent. It's one of the benefits, actually, uh, the Me Too movement has reminded us that people get coerced into things, that they, that they say yes to it, but they don't really mean yes to it. The only basis, and this is not the last time I'll make this point in the sermon, the only basis for healthy human sexuality is covenant commitment. In fact, let me make this point right now if I can, but it won't be me making the point. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4 Paul says, and this is, not in your, this is not in your bulletin, but it's like just five verses after the end of our reading. Paul says, he's talking about marriage and he's talking about sex within marriage. And he says this, this is so countercultural. Like this is the kind of thing that, um, it's just super countercultural. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If your sex life is not based on somebody, your spouse, having complete and absolute, unquestioned control over you, and you having complete and absolute and unquestioned control over them in mutual covenant commitment, 
where both of you are acting not out of sense of taking, but out of sense of giving in your sexuality, it's not going to be healthy. It's just not going to be healthy. It's not the way that God designed us to work. It's not the way that God designed sex to work. And the fact that so many of us struggle with this shows that we've actually caved in to the religion of the sexual revolution more than we believe the religion of the Bible, myself included. I read something like this and I think, oh, wow, that's rough. Why do I think that? Well, it's because I've bought into this notion that consent and my personal freedom and my physical needs that need to be met are the most important things about my sexuality. It's deeply damaging and deeply unbiblical. People are starting to realize this now. Oh, by the way, First Corinthians, this, is why, this is why I quoted 1 Corinthians 7, 4, because that, that language, um, the wife does not have authority authority there, and the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. This is the only other time that Paul uses the word authority, except in verse 12 of our text, where he says, I will not be authoritied by anything. So the only person who should have authority over you is the Lord and your spouse. Any other sexual activity, whether it's mental or psychological or emotional or physical, it's not your spouse, is somebody else enslaving you. Somebody else enslaving you. A Louise Perry, who is not a Christian, actually. She's a, a fairly skeptical, uh, uh, I think she'd call herself a psychologist or sociologist. She just wrote a book, which uh, has gotten all kinds of flack, as you can imagine, last year called, uh, the name of the book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And it's a very interesting book. It's not argued from a Christian standpoint at all. She doesn't quote any scripture. She doesn't know about God or deities at all. But she's just looking, and what happened was is she, she started out as kind of like, just the normal, Louise Perry started, that's kind of the normal, like, you live in this culture, we all have a right to do what we want with our own bodies. She started working as a psychologist, she started working in a rape crisis center about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and she realized the sexual revolution has totally destroyed human sexuality, totally destroyed human sexuality in the West. We are all completely incompetent of having normal sex lives because of the sexual revolution. And she writes this book describing it. Now, she calls herself a feminist, and so the book is primarily about how the sexual revolution has affected women. But she does talk a little bit about how it, has it affected men. One of the things she says in there is this, is that sexual immorality, the sexual revolution, has disenchanted sexuality. Sex has now just become sort of an animal, I've got needs, you've got needs, let's get together and meet those needs. Or I've got needs, let me jump on my phone and look at porn and get those needs met. And what's happened is that sex has become dumbed down. It's become almost base. Instead of the transcendent thing it was designed to be, which she gets that even though she doesn't really totally believe in transcendence. But she says this in the book. She says, sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of the liberal privileging of freedom. She doesn't mean a politically liberal. She means broadly the, the, the enlightenment, the belief that freedom is the most important thing. The liberal privileging of freedom over all other values. Because if you want to be utterly free, you have to take aim at any kind of social restrictions that limit you. She doesn't mention religion, but... I'm sure she would include that, particularly the belief that sex has some unique and tangible value. What she's pointing out here is this, is that our culture has posed two theses, which are completely incompatible. One is this. One is, is that sex is the most important thing, and if you're not having sex, there's something wrong with you. The second thing is, sex isn't important at all. Everybody has to, just, you just, it's not that big of a deal. You should just do it. And both of those things can't possibly be true. But because we try to hold both of the, those things in our head, we're torn between who are we? Who, what does our sexuality mean? When the, the, both of those things can't be true. And especially women. She points out how the sexual revolution 
has victimized women. It has turned women. It has convinced women that in order for you to be fulfilled, you need to act like a man. You need to act like a man. There's this scene in Friends where uh, Joey and Phoebe are talking. I don't usually do Friends illustrations in church. But Joey and Phoebe are talking, and Phoebe's telling, her, telling Joey about this guy that she just met. And she says to him, this guy is so kind and amazing. He told me, like, we don't have to have sex unless you're completely ready for it. And I promise, I will not hold you to any sort of like commitments out of, for this. I, I won't try and hold it over your head. I'm, I'm happy to do this. And she was like, he was just so kind. And Joey says to her, that guy's, that guy's an all-star. He totally convinced you to have cheap, casual sex, and you think he's kind for it. Well, this is what, this is what Louise Perry is saying the sexual revolution has done to women. It said, you know what you need to do? You need to be more like men. You need to treat other people like men treat, like men treat other people. This is her point. She uh, uses one of, her, uh, fa- one of her favorite examples is Marilyn Monroe, who was a classic 1950s sex symbol, right? And men just completely abused her. Not just men in the entertainment industry, men in her life, just completely ran her over. And at the end, she committed suicide. Louise Perry says this, Marilyn Monroe's suicide is proof positive that the sexual revolution has not worked for women. Sexualizing women has not satisfied them. And then she goes on to say this, in order to satisfy women, in order to change the incentive structure, she says, check this out, so she's not a Christian. She, was, she says, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior. She means like males who just want sex. I don't want anything from you. I don't want to give you my money. I don't want to give you my commitment. I don't want to give you my time. I just need you to have sex with me. Short-termism. She says, we need to, uh, to in order to, to combat that, to protect the economic interest of mothers and to create a stable environment for the raising of children and We already do have such a technology, she says, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. The name of that technology, she says, is monogamous marriage. She's not a a Christian at all, but she looks at this and rightly sees is that if you, you will be a slave to something, and the sexual revolution promises you freedom, but it's turned all of us into slaves. And what Paul is saying is this, you don't want to be a slave. You don't want to be owned by somebody else. You don't want to be owned by a group of people. If, if porn is your thing, this is a whole industry of people whose job is to own you for the purpose of getting money and control out of you. You don't want to be owned by anybody. You are free in Jesus Christ. Can you be free and sexually fulfilled? Yes. We have a technology for that, Louise Perry says. We call it monogamous marriage. But outside of that, it's only slavery. It's only slavery. Don't be, I know this, I, I just phrased that a little bit negatively. Let me phrase it positively. You want freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Second thing, you belong to the Lord. You belong to Jesus. Um, now, again, I say that, and it's a sign that I'm a prisoner of the sexual revolution when my first impulse after saying that is, oh, that doesn't sound like fun. I have to now convince them that belonging to Jesus, they can still have fun. Actually, the, 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 Paul is going to frame this in terms of, like, this is good. You want to belong to Jesus. You, wanna, you want to find your satisfaction you want to know and live in the reality that your true lover is Jesus of Nazareth, that nobody will satisfy you like Jesus of Nazareth does. Look at verse 13, uh, back half of verse 13. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So what is it? That seems weird. So the body's, growing up, I would expect him to say, like my, my fundamentalist Baptist version of it would be, you're not meant for sexual, sexual immorality, you're meant for purity. 
That's not what he says. He says, you're not meant for sexual immorality. You're meant for the Lord and the Lord for your body. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord. Then he goes to the resurrection and will also raise this up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's hard for us to see this because we think of God and sex as two different things. Like there's God, there's my sex life, which is private. God's not interested in that. Actually, God invented sex. He knows all about it. He created it. He designed it to work the way it does. So he gets to have a say over it. So it's a little bit weird. We talk about God and our relationship with sex. And whenever I do this, I, there'll be some people who will say, that's just so weird. And it's okay if it feels weird to you. If, if it feels weird to you, it means that we're, we're coming to grips with what it really is. And we're breaking out of our mindset that sex is about me and my personal desires. God, I have an app for that on my phone too. I can open up that app and do God stuff. I can go to church. I can tithe. I can sing Christian hymns even. I can even talk about my faith. But sex, that's a different app on my phone. I, go some, I, have, I have another whole place that I put sex life in my head and in my activities. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to know that we were created for him. Two ways he says that here. First of all, we were destined for the resurrection. Verse 14, God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Christians sometimes think about sex like this, um, kind of like the, 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 the Christians in Corinth. I, I can do what I want because... I mean, is it really going to get me out of heaven when I die? I can always ask for forgiveness. As though the point of Christianity is to get you to heaven when you die. Meanwhile, you can do whatever you want here, and all you have to do is just ask for forgiveness. Remember, though, the point of Christianity is not to get us to heaven when we die. Paul never frames it like that. The point of Christianity is that God is a human being who rose from the dead, and he's determined to raise our bodies from the dead as well. God wants to fix our bodies. Christianity is about God redeeming and purifying and making our bodies the way he designed it to be in the Garden of Eden. That's what resurrection is. That's why Paul goes to resurrection there. The second thing is this. It's not just about what, is, what God is going to do with our bodies in the resurrection. It's also about our relationship with him and the quest for transcendence. Paul says this. The antidote to sexual sin is not try hard not to commit sexual sin. All of us commit sexual sin. If you are a post-pubescent human being in this room, you grapple with and you commit and you must every day repent of sexual sin. That's just, I mean, that's just Christianity 101. Unless you're completely sanctified, unless somehow you've been transported to heaven and then brought back down here to us as the perfect model of a Christian, you grapple with sexual sin. The point isn't try harder to stop. The point is to go to the gospel. You struggle with sexual sin, the Lord owns you, and wants a relationship with you. You belong to him. He's determined to raise your body from the dead. This, the, the, sexual sin grows out of a pursuit for a transcendent experience that only God wants to give us. I'll say that again. That's good. That, that, that's good. Sexual sin grows out of the pursuit of a transcendent experience that only God can give us. It's, it's another way of saying it. it's, it's idolatry. Aldous Huxley, back in the 1930s, described his life in the 1920s when he went to college. I think I've given you guys this quote before. This is a, a book of essays by his called Ends and Means. And he talked about, you know, going to, going to college. He's kind of a vaguely religious person. But when he, when he got to college, he realized, actually, you know what? I don't want to be religious. I want to have sex with a lot of people. And those two things weren't going together. And so knowing God achieving transcendence by having a relationship with the creator of the universe. 
he was like, that's not good enough. I want sex. Here's what he said. For myself, and this is in college, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. I'll translate what he says. I had a choice. I could have God in meaningfulness. Here's purpose. Here's a transcendent reality that wants me to experience him. Or I could have sex, in which case I needed to get rid of all the transcendence. I needed to get rid of God and purpose and meaning in order to say that the only thing that really counts is my desire to do what I want. Nothing else can count. Nothing else is allowed to have a say. So what does he do? We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom, Huxley says. It's a very, very remarkably honest atheist. You know, but it's a lot of atheists you talk to and like, well, I've been pondering the, the problem of evil. I don't see the evidences for God. Uh, actually, a lot of times, it's you just kind of want to do what you want. And as long as there's a God in the room, you don't get to do what you want. And so uh, Huxley is very, very honest. I like that. The supporters of this system uh, uh, claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. But there was one admirably simple, simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. The only thing that was going to count would be our erotic revolt, is what he calls it. Sex is the only thing that's going to matter. Nothing else will matter. In other words, I'm going to pursue transcendence in sexuality. Christians do this too. And, and, you know, you, again, you have your God app on your phone that you can flip on every once in a while to make yourself feel better. But the, the problem with pursuing transcendence in human sexuality is that it can never do that. It can never do that. Sex is wonderful. It's amazing. It's an incredible gift of God. But it can't ever get you beyond this level. It can never move you to the realm of glory. It can never move you to transcendence. It can reflect it. That will be my third point. It's good enough to reflect it, but it can never get you there by itself. And so people notice this. People have started no, no, noticing this. Uh, there's a, a, an essay by Chuck Klosterman that I like. I quote it to the high schoolers every once in a while. And I, I frequently have people that I do marital counseling or premarital counseling read this essay. Chuck Klosterman is a, um, he's a contemporary writer, writes about a lot of pop culture stuff. It's an essay he wrote called This is Emo, where he says this in the essay. Whenever I meet dynamic, mentally normal Americans, I notice that they all seem to share a single unifying characteristic. The inability to experience, so this is what combines all Americans, Chuck Klosterman says. The inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship they perceive to be a normal part of living. So he's saying, I've chased the transcendence in romantic relationships, in human sexuality. And I look around at myself in all normal, mentally healthy Americans, and I notice that everybody else thinks that romance can get us up there. That's what I need to be fulfilled. I, I just need to have good sex. And everybody's disappointed. And in the essay, I won't read it all to you, it's a little bit crass. He talks about um, uh, wanting to take his girlfriend at the time on a romantic weekend getaway to New York City. It was gonna be romantic, they were gonna have lots of sex, he said. And at the last minute, she bailed on him because she wanted to go to a Coldplay concert with her friends. And he said, I can't compete with Coldplay. They offer up transcendence. They talk about like, you know, love is beautiful and it's gonna fix you. And I'm just a human being. I can't possibly satisfy this woman. I can't possibly, and he talked to, talked to in the essay, he talks about how rom-coms, John Cusack movies, have permanently impaired our ability to have normal relationships because everybody thinks that their life should be Hugh Grant and Sandra Bullock at the end of the story. And nobody can get there. 
The sexual revolution, again to ape Louise Perry, has let us down. Now, Freud, this, Freud said this. Freud said this. I mean, he said this wrongly. Freud said, 100 years ago, Freud said that religion is a manifestation of repressed sexuality. Our culture has repressed its sexuality. We, we, we don't act out on our sexual urges. And as a result of that, religion has happened to create these sort of fake worship experiences. But really, like, if we would just, really, if we, if we would just open up about our sexuality and, just, and be free with our sexuality, we wouldn't need that. Uh, Marx said the same thing about money. You know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Like, the only thing that counts is capital and money. And when you suppress that, religion will come up to, to kind of fake it. Um, Nietzsche said the same thing about power. Power is the only thing that counts. And if you suppress the idea of power and you try to be meek, you're going to need God. All three of these guys denied God, right? And they tried to replace him with sex in the case of Freud, money in the case of Marx, power in the case of Nietzsche. These are three, three great prophets of the 20th century. But what Paul is saying here is this. Paul is saying Freud is wrong. For, for, you know, Freud says that um, religion is a manifestation of repressed sexuality. And what Paul is saying is, is that sexuality is a manifestation of religion. Sexuality is a manifestation of our relationship with God. Sexuality was designed to mimic and mirror the transcendence of knowing and loving God, which brings me to my third point. Your sexuality was designed to image God. Now, Paul says this is in verse 16. This is the link here. Paul says, don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, where Paul makes Adam and Eve. And he says, man leaves his father and mother. He's joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. Paul is saying that that verse is about sex. I mean, you don't have to be too imaginative. I want to keep this as PG as possible. You don't have to be too imaginative to, to see the verse, the two will become one flesh, as a pretty decent description of sexual intercourse. Paul is saying that's what it is. Adam and Eve joined together, two became one flesh. Now, what this means in Genesis is that it's really, this is about, the, the, the phrase itself is about sex, but it's really a reference to the Trinity. And for those of you who've done premarital counseling or marital counseling, you've heard this, so just hold on to it first. Just uh, give me 30 seconds to explain this to, to the rest of everybody else. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God, plural, says let us, we know now from this side of human history that it's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make humans in our plural image. Male and female, verse 27, he made them. God makes humans in his image, not as individuals, that's an American thing, but as male and female. And after that, it expands. We have a, a church here that's made in God's image. So lots of men, lots of women, lots of kids. But, but initially in Genesis 1, it's man and woman that he makes to mirror what the life of the Trinity looks like. So when he says in Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh, it's as close as we get in the Bible to a description of humans that sounds like the Trinity, that sounds like three persons in one Godhead, two persons in one flesh. That's God designed sex to look like the Trinity. God designed sex to look like the joy and the complete openness and self-givingness that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had for each other from all eternity. Sex is designed to, now I say this is one of the things that people say, that's kind of weird. 
Sex in the Trinity, I don't want to think about that. Let's just, because we're, again, we're slaves to this notion that sex is its own private religion, which you can kind of have on the side. And then Christianity is something different. And Paul's saying, no, you were made to look like the Trinity. And when you have sex outside of marriage, what you're saying is, is that the thing that God gave me to maybe most clearly look like the Trinity, I'm going to use to serve myself in ways that defy what the Trinity was always about, which is complete, absolute giving, unconditional always giving, never demanding, complete self-sacrifice, complete um, abandonment to the other, complete belonging to the other. And when we twist sex around to even, we do this in marriage too, to say this is about me. This is about my needs that need to be met. This is about me needing to take from you. We're going against what this two become one flesh, the three in one that we were created to look like. But Paul also quotes Genesis 2, 24, the two, two shall become one flesh. And Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. So, so I'm gonna give you two things here. One is the Trinity. Sex was designed to look like the Trinity. That's what Paul means here by quoting Genesis 2. Keep that in mind, the Trinity. In, in Ephesians 5, though, he goes with a little bit different angle. He goes like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, if you're gonna be a husband, giving yourself up to your wife. Giving yourself, and none of us do this perfectly, but that's the goal. Not like you get part of me and you give me part of you, but everything that I am, you get. Husbands, love your wives. Give yourselves up for them as Christ gave himself up for the church. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he goes on to say, because we are members of his body, therefore, and then he quotes Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about sex there, sex and marriage. But then he says this, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. See what he's saying? The mystery of sex is profound. Why is sex so important? Why is sex so desirable? Why is it so tempting to worship sex? The answer is, is because it's actually about Christ and his church. And if we take the Christ and his church out of it, we'll end up worshiping the created thing instead of the one truly good thing, the creator God who gave himself up to become a human being to rescue his church, to die on a cross to save us from our sins, to die on a cross to say, I will give you every last drop of my blood. I will give you every last bit of my emotions. Every last one of my thoughts, Jesus says, I will give to you. Every choice I could ever make, I will abandon it for your sake. And now I'm going to invent marriage so that you can experience, even imperfectly because we're sinful, even imperfectly we can experience a little bit of that. We can give each other the gospel. And not just me and Angela, but by me and Angela loving each other, we can give that to you guys too. We can hopefully, again, imperfectly because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge screw up. We can begin modeling. I can begin modeling for you what it looks like for Christ to love his church. That when, you, when we see each other's marriages, we should think, that complete abandonment to the other totally reminds me of Jesus and how much Jesus loves me. Tim Keller, let me give you two quotes from Tim Keller and then we'll be done. Tim Keller says this, uh, sex is sacred because it's the analogy, I'm gonna give you the Trinity and then the Christ and his church. Sex is sacred because it's the analogy of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the life of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a relationship of glorious devotion to each other pouring love and joy into one another continually. Sex between a married man and a woman points to this same love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's very important. It's not, it's not a throwaway. And even if you're not, you're married and you're sexually faithful, 
within your marriage. To ramp up the importance of it, to realize that this is actually not just some sort of throwaway thing, that this needs to be a part of our lives where it's an act of worship. I don't mean you're singing hymns or praying prayers, but acknowledging that this is a gift of God that we celebrate with him as we celebrate each other. The second thing about Jesus' love for his church, and then we'll be done. Indeed, uh, Tim Keller says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Body and soul, I will not hold back one bit of my nakedness from you, physically, emotionally, psychologically. You must not use sex, Keller sums up, to say anything less. Anything less than we've become slaves. But Jesus died to save us for something better than that. Jesus died to save us for himself. Jesus died to save us for resurrection. Jesus died to save us so that we could be pulled up and join in the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had with each other before the foundation of the world. And sexuality, enjoyed the way God designed it to, pictures the gospel, pictures the life of the Trinity in ways that almost nothing else can. Let's enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating us in your image. Father, help us to live in your image. Help us to live as self-givers and not takers. Help us to live as covenant commitment lovers and not people who hold ourselves back from each other, not people who use each other. God, give us the freedom that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Keep us from walking once again into slavery. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.